Well, good morning. Good morning on this uh, Monday morning, bright and early. I uh, hope you are ready to dig into the Word of God together. Uh, my name is Doug Gooden. I've been a Bible teacher for over 25 years, and I'm persuaded that if ever there was a time when we needed to be studying the Word of God, it is now. And uh, we've picked this uh, book, Ecclesiastes, to uh, begin our morning daily Bible studies because I'm convinced if ever there was a time that we needed the, the message of Ecclesiastes, it is today. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, for those of you who are listening via podcast, you missed the, uh, the opening song. If you got here late, you missed the opening song. But that is the newest release from my son, Gabe Gooden, called Joy, which is appropriate for what we're going to be talking about. Uh, so starting tomorrow, you can find that on all your music players and YouTube. So I'll probably, as a, as a proud dad, um, comment on that again tomorrow. So we're going to dig into the book of Ecclesiastes. I hope you have your Bible with you. And uh, if you have a cup of coffee, uh, join me as we uh, as we get started here. We'll, uh, Scott Adams, I don't know if you know who he is, he has what he calls a simultaneous sip. Well, we're going to give it the uh, sanctified sip. So if you want to drink a cup of coffee uh, with me, and we'll get started. Uh, that's good. Thank you, Lord, for that. All right, so um, the book of Ecclesiastes, it is regarded as a very uh, pessimistic book by a lot of people. Uh, it's considered almost nihilistic by some because the, the famous line of the, uh, of the book is vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that sounds pretty nihilistic. It sounds like he is saying there is nothing meaningful in the world. In fact, some of the translations translate that phrase meaninglessness or futility or empty, that kind of thing. And it's easy to consider the book of Ecclesiastes as a very depressing kind of book. But it actually isn't. It wasn't written to be depressing. It was written to show us the path to true joy. And as I said earlier, in America especially today, but really all around the world, any, any culture that has adopted the evolutionary worldview, uh, any kind of an atheistic worldview, uh, for someone with that mindset to believe that there is reason for joy in this life... Uh, they're really being dishonest. They're being superficial. They're not looking at reality the way it really is. Because as, as the author of Ecclesiastes will argue, if there is nothing beyond the sun, then nothing under the sun matters. The truth is we are all going to die. We, we know that. Everybody knows that. Every skeptic, every cynic, every atheist, we all know we're going to die. We, we can't escape that fact. If there's nothing beyond the sun, if there's no God, there's no creator, there's no accountability, uh, there's no, no one who made all of this for a purpose, then what we do here in this life is ultimately meaningless. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is willing to look honestly at that reality. One of the recurring phrases of this book is under the sun, under the sun. He examines life under the sun and he wrestles with how do we make sense of all of this? And the only answer is there has to be something beyond the sun. And he, he knows there is something beyond the sun. So we're going to see that as we go uh, through this book together. Uh, 
Today, I want to focus in on Solomon himself. It is easy to, uh, to just dive into the words that he wrote, but think about who he was. This was the son of David. Now, I, I should back up. I should clarify. There's a lot of scholars these days that question whether or not Solomon is the one who wrote Ecclesiastes. Uh, I'm persuaded that he did write it. I follow the traditional view. So I'm not going to get into all the arguments as to why uh, some would say that he didn't do it. He didn't write it. Um, some of it has to do with historicals. A lot of it has to do with the book itself. They don't see how Solomon could have written such a, a negative, uh, depressing book. Uh, but I, I'm convinced that he actually did write it. And I will uh, show you how, as we get into the first verses here, at the beginning of Ecclesiastes, it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, down in verse 12, he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Uh, I think that's Solomon. And as you look at the internal evidence, as you look at the, the things that he says over and over again, the, the wealth and the experiences that uh, we're going to see in this book, uh, the riches, the, uh, the, the product, productivity, it all matches Solomon very well. So I'm operating under the assumption that Solomon is the one who wrote it. So it begins, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Preacher, here's the, the Hebrew word kohelet. It means the one who assembles. And we, we get this idea from, uh, from biblical history that Solomon would gather the people together in large assemblies and he would, uh, he would teach he would reveal the wisdom that God had given him. So he starts off here, the, the preacher, some of the translations say the teacher. Uh, he assembled people together to share what God had revealed to him. So again, think about Solomon's life before we get into the text. He was the son of Bathsheba. Uh, remember, Bathsheba was the woman, the married woman, who was taking a bath and David, the great king of Israel, the first, and, and uh, well, the second king, but the first great king of Israel, and really the, the one of two great kings of Israel. Uh, there were a few others along the way, but he's the man after God's own heart. David was the, the type and foreshadow of Jesus who would reign over God's people forever. David is out on his, his rooftop and he looks down and sees a woman bathing and he's attracted to her. And he sends his uh, servants to go get her and seduces her and, and she ends up impregnating her. And to cover up his sin, he has her husband killed. And of course, God sees all of this, sends Nathan the prophet to, uh, to call him to rebuke and pronounces upon him some pretty severe punishment for this great sin. Uh, David ended up marrying her because, uh, well, it was the right thing to do, and he had uh, taken her husband out. Uh, well, this is Solomon's mother. So she was obviously a beautiful woman, and she was known throughout Israel as this this woman who David had seduced. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of lot of discussion in the last couple of years about whether Bathsheba could have resisted. Was this some sort of uh, a rape by David? I I don't think so. Uh, we just don't know. And we need to be careful not to speculate beyond what is written. But it was clearly great sin on David's part. So Solomon is her son. And he becomes king over Israel when David dies. Uh, we know that 
God had a special plan for Solomon that, that God said on the on the front end that he was going to keep Solomon to the end. He he was going to forgive him when he sins. Uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God is is making his promises to David, and here in verse 12 he says to David, "When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom." Now, we know this is ultimately talking about Jesus. This is a prophecy of Jesus. Uh, David is a type of Jesus. David's son is a type of Jesus. He's the, the heir to the throne of, of David. So that's who he's talking about. Uh, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's Jesus. We are the house. Christian, you are the house, the temple that Jesus is building in the name of the Father, and his throne, Jesus' throne, is established forever. So we know this is talking about Jesus ultimately, but it's also talking about Solomon. Solomon would build the house of God. David wanted to build the temple. He, he looked out and he says, I'm living in this great palace, and the throne of God, the ark, is living in, in a tent. I'm going to build this great palace for God. And God shows up and says, no, nope, that's not you. Uh, you're a man of war, and I want someone who is uh, peaceable to build my house. So it's your son who will build my house. And he gives Solomon that privilege. And notice what he says here. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. And notice this next line. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul. That gives me great comfort about Solomon because as you look at the rest of his life, he leads Israel into more idolatry than just about anybody else. And you think, how can that man be in heaven? How he, he, there's a big chunk of his life where he commits great apostasy. How do we know that uh, he repented at the end? Well, it's this verse right here. God says, I will not take my loving kindness from him. So at the end of his life, God brings him back. Um, I don't know if you all have any questions here. Let me just dive in and see if there's any questions. Uh, okay, I don't see any. By the way, if you have questions, if you want to chat along, I'd love to read your chats. Uh, begin your questions with a capital Q, and I can find them very, very quickly and easily and uh, be happy to respond to them as we go. All right, so Solomon is, uh, is, is God has, has given him this promise that he will uh, uh, thank you, Clinks88. Thanks for the encouraging words there. Uh, he's, he's promised Solomon that he will uh, hold him in his favor. All right, so let's look a little bit more at uh, Solomon's life. We're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 3, where we see this. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking the statutes of his father David. That's good to know as well, because we're going to see, as we study Ecclesiastes, uh, there's some real wrestling that Solomon does, and and we know, again, about some of his sin. So uh, it's good to know that the word of God itself is saying Solomon loved the Lord. Uh, he walked in his statutes like his father David, except, except 
he sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. That's going to come back to haunt him. So he's offering these sacrifices to God, but he's doing it in, on the mountaintops where idols are worshipped rather than around the Ark of the Covenant and the Tent of Meeting. This was before the temple was built. So that's, that's going to come back to haunt him. But there's some good things here. Verse 5, In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God asked, What do you wish me to give to you? Ask what you wish, and I'll give it to you. Now, this is amazing. God just shows up to Solomon and says, ask anything you want. You, you sort of think, and I don't mean to be crass here, but you sort of think of, uh, of the stories of you know, the, the, the man who finds the magic lamp and he rubs it and out pops his genie and he says, hey, I will, uh, I will give you anything you want. You get three wishes. It can ask anything you want except for more wishes kind of thing. God shows up to Solomon and says, ask whatever you want. Ask me and it's yours. What would you ask for? If God shows up tonight in a dream and he says, hey, I will give you anything, just ask. What would you ask? Uh, we're tempted to ask uh, material things. We're tempted to ask about, you know, if there's something urgent, if we're, if we're sick, you know, we might ask for healing. If we have a loved one who's in trouble, we might ask for their rescue, uh, that, that's just naturally what we would do. I mean, think about what you ask anyway. Think about what your prayer life is about. We, we tend to be um, wrapped up in the things that, uh, that are urgent for us at the moment. And that's exactly what Solomon does. He asks according to what is on his mind at the moment. And what is on his mind is, I've been entrusted with this kingship, uh, this, this responsibility to, to rule over the nation of Israel and I don't know if I can do it. And so he asks very wisely for wisdom to lead the people of God. Let's look at it again. Again, this is 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 6. Then Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. You've reserved for him this great loving kindness that you've given him a son to sit on the throne. Talking about himself here, Solomon. Now, O Lord God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I'm but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? That's a great question, a great request. Lord, you've entrusted me to rule over your people. I feel like a child. Now, he's a grown man at this point, but he says, I feel like a child. I feel like I don't know how to do this, so I'm asking for wisdom. I'm asking for understanding. My job as king, he says, is going to be to make decisions for your people. That's what kings do. I'm going to be called to, to make decisions, to be the judge and the ruler of your people, and I want to do it well. I want to honor you in how I lead them. And so he asks for discernment, for wisdom. And notice verse 10. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon asked this thing. And he goes on to say, you didn't ask for riches, but I'm going to give you riches. You didn't ask for power over all of your enemies, but I'm going to give you dominance over all your enemies. And he says, if you will obey me, 
if you'll be faithful to me, keep my commandments, I will give you long life. Now, that's the one that Solomon does not uh, persevere in as well as we will see. But it's a great request. Lord, give me wisdom to do what you've called me to do. That's a great prayer for all of us. Think about your day today. What has God called you to do today? Uh, You're a father. You're a mother. You're going to work soon. Uh, Whatever your role in life is on this Monday morning, what has God called you to do? Have you paused and asked him for the wisdom for the discernment to do that well. You have been entrusted with responsibility over things in life. Uh, Small things, larger things. Have you asked him for the wisdom, discernment, uh, for the insight and the perseverance to do that well? It's a good thing. It's a good request. And the Lord was pleased with Solomon for asking. Then at the end of that chapter, what we see is that famous story where these two prostitutes bring uh, this dead baby to Solomon, or they bring a living baby because another one had died. And, and so these two prostitutes had given birth, both of them. One of the babies died because the mom rolled over and I guess smothered it. And so they bring this baby and they're disputing as to whose baby it is. The charge is that the, the woman whose uh, baby died swapped it with uh, the other one. And so the, the question is, whose baby is this? And uh, how, how is he going to settle that dispute? He's trying to make this decision about uh, whose baby this is. And he says, bring me a sword. Let's cut the baby in half and give half to each woman. The woman who's lying says, fine. Because her heart was, if I can't have my baby, then I don't want her to have her baby either. But the mother of the child who was living said, no, 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 no. Let her have it. As the mother, she couldn't stand to see her baby killed. So it's, it's, it's a graphic, rather a, a astonishing uh, kind of, uh, of decision. But this news spread all throughout Israel of the wisdom of Solomon that he was able to expose that the, the woman who, whose baby was still alive would be desperate not to let her baby be killed. So she said, fine, let the other one have it. So that's just one of the stories that that follows immediately after this wisdom that God gives him. We see in 1 Kings chapter 4, more discussion about the wisdom of Solomon and how much God blessed him with this. Here's what it says. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand is on the seashore. His wisdom was was so vast, it's kind of like trying to count all the, the pebbles of sand on the beach. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the East and all the sons of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrite and Heman and Calcol and Darda the sons of Mahal. I don't, I don't know who those people are, but apparently they were very wise and Solomon's wisdom surpassed them all. His fame was known in all the surrounding nations. You may recall the stories of the Queen of Sheba coming to ask Solomon questions. And, and leaders from nations all over the world came to ask Solomon questions because they understood he was extremely, extremely wise. This is the man who wrote Ecclesiastes. This is one of the reasons I'm stressing this at the beginning is this is the man. God gave him wisdom. When we read the Proverbs, when we read Ecclesiastes, when we read Song of Solomon, we are reading the words of the wisest man who ever lived, save Jesus himself. God says it. You're going to be wiser than anybody who came after you, anybody who came before you. God implanted this practical, 
life skill, decision-making wisdom in Solomon, and we have his words to read about what wisdom really is. Uh, He's wiser than all these people. Verse 32 says he spoke 3,000 Proverbs, 3,000 of them. We have a bunch of them in the book of Proverbs. And his songs were 1,005. We have one of his songs. It's called the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. But he wrote 1,004 more songs that we don't have. He spoke of trees and the cedar of Lebanon and so on. Uh, Verse 34, men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Came from all over the place. So this man who writes this book of Ecclesiastes, he's the son of this famous, beautiful queen, uh, Bathsheba. He's given by God great discernment. And he writes it down for us. And he lives a life of ruling over Israel, using this great discernment and this great wisdom uh, to make decisions for Israel. And he leads Israel into the golden age of the Jews. They prosper on every side. Uh, David had done the conquering. And now Solomon, whose name is based on the Hebrew shalom, the peace, he leads Israel into great times of peace and blessing and prosperity. And people were at ease in Zion, at ease in Jerusalem, and they grew in vast wealth and productivity because Solomon was a genius when it comes to administration and finance and building enterprises and all of that, as we will see as we study this book. He leads them into this great golden age, and he serves God faithfully for many years until, uh, until Toward the end of his life, he, he has married, and we know this, this is his famous story about Solomon, but he's married 700 women, most of them not from Israel, and he's got 300 concubines, so a thousand wives uh, for, for all intents and purposes, and they bring with them their idols, And this leads Solomon into apostasy. He breaks away from uh, from his faithfulness to God, and he allows the, the foreign women and their idols, he allows them to persist, and then they capture his heart, and and it leads them into great sin. Uh, Let's look at this uh, this sad description of Solomon. In, in his life in 1 Kings chapter 11. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, uh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. Uh, Joshua Brown says, Slight overkill for sure. As <laughs> we were talking there about, uh, about his wives. Yeah, I have, I have one wife. I love her. She's wonderful. Uh, I cannot imagine two or three or 10. I can't imagine 15 or 20, and I cannot imagine a thousand. Anyway, he, he loved many foreign women. Notice it says he loved them. He loved them. Uh, verse two, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Again, this goes back to when uh, Joshua led the people of Israel into the land of Canaan, into the promised land, and he, he warned them to, to wipe out 
um, all of the people and make sure that their sons do not take the women as wives because they'll be tempted to to um, be gentle, be merciful, and and accept their their idols. And that's exactly what Solomon did. This is the king of Israel. He has 700 wives, and he doesn't require them uh, to conform to Yahweh and eliminate their idols. So he loved them. God had warned them. It says Solomon held fast to these in love. He held fast to these women. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. So toward the end of his life, he's left the faithfulness to God and given in to the wives. We see this throughout the scripture, don't we? Go back to Adam and Eve. Adam is called to be the protector of the garden, the protector of his wife. He is responsible for everything in the garden, including his wife. He watches as Satan draws near to Eve and tempts her to sin. And remember when God rebukes Adam, one of the things he says is, because you listened to your wife and did not do what I told you to do. I told you, don't eat of that tree. And Adam allowed Eve to lead him into sin. Instead of standing firm as the man, as the responsible one, he followed his wife. Well, Solomon did the same thing. For all of my brothers there out there who are husbands, we got to remember this. We are called to be responsible for our homes. And we love our wives. And we should cherish them and nourish them and care for them and provide for them and listen to them. They bring so much wisdom and so much joy to our lives. But, but we must not allow our wives to lead us into sin. No matter how alluring they may be and how persuasive they may be, we stand before God first on our own. And we have a responsibility to show them the way of righteousness and lead them into righteousness. And this is just for us as husbands, much less uh, being the king of Israel. I mean, he not only led himself and his family into sin by following the idolatry of his wives, but he led the entire nation. When he sets the example of worshiping on these high places and offering sacrifices to idols, he sets the example for the entire nation and it makes God angry, as we will see. Verse 4, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of, his David, of David his father had been. Again, what a, what a sad statement. His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord. Oh, may we be pure in heart. The Bible says, Jesus taught us, right? The, the, those who are pure in heart will see God. That's what we want to be. Solomon was not that at the end of his life. Verse 5, For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemish, the detestable idol of Moab on the mountain, which is east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Remember, Moloch is the one that they offered their children to, and God was furious with Israel for their idolatry. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord 
was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. And then God goes on and he says to Solomon, because you've done this, I'm going to rip away from you the kingdom. And he took 10 of the 12 tribes and gave them to Solomon's enemy. He said, because of your father, David, I'm going to reserve two of the tribes for you and you'll get to continue to reign in Jerusalem and your sons, your descendants will reign from Jerusalem. But I'm ripping the larger part of the kingdom away from your family because you've led my people into great sin and idolatry. This is the man who wrote Ecclesiastes. Great highs, great uh, uh, thriving as king and glory until he sinned and sinned mightily. And then everything came crashing down. What I'm convinced the book of Ecclesiastes is, 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 is Solomon at the end of his life as he has reflected back on all that he has done. He, he thinks about all the, the positive things he accomplished in light of his sin. And now he sees if we are not living moment by moment for the glory of God and the fear of the Lord, which he says is the beginning of wisdom, then it is all meaningless because we're all going to just die and we have nothing to show for it if it's not been lived for eternal purposes. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. He's reflecting back on his life, on his sin, on his success, his failures, all of it. And he says the only thing that gives meaning to any of this is knowing there is someone beyond the sun to whom we will give an account. Let me, let me show you that from the end of the book, and then I'll come back and see if you have any, any questions. So he, uh, he wraps it up. We're going to look at, uh, at verse, uh, chapter 12 here. Uh, verse 9 says, In addition to being a wise man, the preacher, the Kohelet, the, the assembler who calls people together, he also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered and searched out and arranged many Proverbs. Remember, we, we, we said that earlier. He wrote the book of Proverbs. Uh, we have some of these. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. I love that. What that's saying is Solomon gave careful thought to expressing his wisdom. So as we read the Proverbs, as we read Ecclesiastes, we can be sure that he, he wrote these things slowly. He said, okay, I've been given this vast knowledge and wisdom by God. How do I articulate this in a meaningful, careful way uh, to people? So he, 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 he sought to find delightful words, it says. The words of the wise men are like goads. They, they poke us and they prod us forward. And masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They're in place and they're solid and they hold us. They're given by one shepherd. He's now reflecting, understands all of his, these words are given by God himself. But beyond this, my son, he's writing to his son. Just like the book of Proverbs, he wants his children to not make the same mistakes he did and to, to learn what he's learned. Beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless. Excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. There's going to be a lot of people who bring their wisdom to you. You stick the word to the words written by the one shepherd. And here's the conclusion. When all has been heard, it's this. Fear God, keep his commandments. 
He looks back at his life and he says, this is what matters. Fear God. Be faithful to God. Do everything you do aware of the fact that you are accountable to God. So keep his commandments. The next line here says this applies to every person. Uh, In the Hebrew, I believe it's probably more likely that this is the whole person. This is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. Why? Verse 14, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. That's his final word. He he looks back on his life and says, this is what matters. We're going to die and then we're going to meet God in judgment. So live now with that in view. And what Solomon didn't understand fully that we now know is in Christ, we're forgiven for our sins, but we're still going to stand before him in judgment. All of us are, the scripture says. So what we do now counts forever. What you do today, every action, every thought, every emotion, every word you and I speak today is going to be brought into the judgment. And and Jesus said we're going to be rewarded for the good things we do. Thankfully, he took the punishment for the bad things, so we're not in fear of, of condemnation. Not if you're a believer in Jesus. He took your condemnation. But we have purpose in life because he has promised us that the things we do today, he and his grace is going to reward us. So how you live this morning and this afternoon and this evening, it matters. God sees it. He cares. And the wisdom of Solomon would say, Live with that in view. That's what gives purpose to you. All right, so let me see. Uh, I don't think a lot of comments came in, but let me uh, quickly see what what is here. Uh, Clinks888 says, Was Solomon sinning by having so many wives? I think I've heard you say polygamy wasn't a sin before the Old Covenant. Pop up here where you can see it. Uh, I've... Uh, I've heard others say otherwise. Is this a common misconception? Yeah, great question. And, uh, and you have been listening carefully. The Bible never condemns anyone for their polygamy. Think about that. Nowhere is it, uh, is it said that God was angry with Abraham uh, or... David, or anyone else. It's just not there. In fact, uh, in Exodus 21, I believe it is, God gives in the law to Israel, God gives instruction for what a man must do if he takes a second wife. He says, if you take a second wife, you must make sure that you don't deny your first wife food and clothing and sexual relations. So you can't abandon your first for your second. That's in the law of Moses. That's given to the people of Israel. Here are the parameters for that. I think the most uh, convincing uh, statement, let me see if I can find it here real quick, is, uh, uh, where is it? Um, Let me think for a moment. Um, Pause. Uh, well, I looked this up. Uh, um, oh, yeah, it's in Second Samuel chapter 12. So let me pull that up. This is, uh, nope, that's the wrong one. 
Okay, so this is when uh, God sends um, Nathan to rebuke David for his sin with Bathsheba. We talked about that earlier. And he sends uh, Nathan to tell him the story about the man who had one little poor lamb. And, and uh, you may remember that parable. Anyway, so God is rebuking David harshly. And uh, he's, he's exposing David's sin with Bathsheba. David had tried to hide it. And, and here's, what he, what, here's what he says. Uh, let me get rid of that so that you can all see the, the text. Okay. Uh, so here's what he says. You're the man. Nathan again had told the parable. You're the man. Uh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you, this is God speaking to David through Nathan. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If that had been too little, I would have added many more things like these. This is what tells me, this is what convinces me that polygamy was not, uh, well, let me, let, me, let me give you a nuance. I'm a theologian. That's what theologians do, right? We nuance. You ask the question, is it sinful? Let me come back to that. It was clearly not illegal. It was not unlawful under the old covenant to have more than one wife. And God himself says it. I gave you, David, I gave you the wives of your, uh, uh, what's he say? Huh, I missed it. Uh, your master's wives. And I would have given you more. God is furious with David, not because he took Bathsheba as wife even though he was already married to other women. He was furious because he took a married woman, committed adultery with her, and then, of course, had her husband murdered. So David's sin here was not polygamy. It was adultery and murder. So I'm persuaded that uh, the Old Covenant did not consider polygamy unlawful. Now, was it sinful in any sense? This is a complex one. Uh, Josh and I, if you follow our podcast, Josh and I are going to talk about divorce and remarriage here in a, in a couple of weeks. And we'll get into uh, divorce where, where Jesus said it was because of the hardness of your heart that God gave you divorce in the law. Divorce was legal under the law, but it was not the original design. And he takes marriage back to the original design and says, uh, God brought man and woman together as one flesh, and, and, and you're not supposed to divorce, you're not supposed to break that up. And he says, the reason God gave you uh, divorce was because of the wickedness of your heart or the hardness of your heart. Uh, some would say the same thing is with polygamy, uh, that God allowed it because of the hardness of their heart. The problem is the Bible doesn't ever say that. So I'm not persuaded uh, that polygamy was sinful in the old covenant. I do believe it's sinful in the new covenant because of that. Hey, babe, speaking of wives, here's mine as she's on her way to work. Morning, everyone. <laughs> Have a great day. Thanks, babe. Love you. All right. We'll talk to you later. We run a very casual show around here. All right. Uh, so that's the answer to your question. Thanks for asking. Hope that was helpful. Uh, Lydia says, do you think someone can lose their salvation or do they always have it and just bury it under their sins? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, let me put that up so that uh, people can see that as well. Uh, very common question. 
Um, again, I'm, I'm going to nuance this a little bit. At the end of the day, I believe the scripture is clear that you, if you have been born again, if you have truly been regenerated by God's spirit, then God will keep you to the end. Jesus said this basically in John 5, uh, all the Father has given to me, I will raise them up on the last day. So if the Father has given you to his son Jesus, he will raise you up. That's, that's our hope when we begin to doubt, right? When we, when we sin, when we uh, have our... Um, uh, the questions fill our head when the enemy fills our head with discouragement. That's our hope. It's it's not ultimately about us doing the right things all the time. It's not uh, it's not up to us to hold um, to be perfect. He will raise us up. He holds us in His hand. Having said that, the Bible is equally clear that we have to persevere to the end. We have to hold fast our faith to the end. Uh, let me let me show you that as well uh, in. Hebrews chapter 3, uh, nope, that's not it, Hebrews chapter 3, we have what's uh, basically a, a definition of, of what it means to be a Christian, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14 here, it says, for we have become partakers of Christ. We have been. We have we've grabbed a hold of him and now participate in Messiah if, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So, uh, yes, we can, uh, we all sin and we, and we have our longer periods of time when we're in, in greater sin and, and um, it may look to somebody like we're in apostasy. It's the, well, the writer of Hebrews does go on and use the word apostasy later on. But ultimately, if we are his, if we have the new birth, if we are new creatures in Christ, then he will bring us to repentance and we will not commit full and final apostasy. We will not reject Christ. We will not reject the gospel. And we will not persevere in our sin. We will come back to repentance. And this is what he says a Christian is. We have been, we have become partakers if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Uh, now, I'm not the judge of whether you hold fast firm to the end. I can't look at your lifestyle and be clear. Now, if you verbally, if you, if you uh, abandon Christ and say, I'm not a believer anymore, um, then that's a pretty good indication that your heart is against him. But my point is, you can't just look at someone's life and assume that you know all that's going on. This is between you know that person and God. God's the judge, ultimately. You and I are not. Um, at the same time, we all know Christians who do have long periods of time when they are just really in rebellion and sinful. And uh, we can't just give them hope because, hey, they prayed some prayer sometime or or they got baptized or whatever, that doesn't mean anything. Ultimately, uh, they have to have real faith. But if they do have real faith, then they will, uh, they will repent and come back. I hope that answers your question, uh, Lydia. If you, if you want to follow up, uh, feel free to. And I'm sure we'll come back to that in future, um, uh, future studies because 
That's a common question. Well, our time has gotten away from us. Uh, I don't see any more questions here. Appreciate all your chats and your comments. Uh, tomorrow, we will uh, dive in straight to the... Uh, uh, to the text itself and look at what, is, what does Solomon mean when he says vanity of vanities um, and, uh, and find the hope of Ecclesiastes. So thanks for joining me. We'll see you again tomorrow morning. God bless.